Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. This podcast strives to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Today, I am joined by special guest, Reverend Dr. Whit Malone, who, after over 40 years in ministry, is retiring this summer. Whit, thanks for taking the time to be with us today and share your wisdom. You're so welcome. Our outline for this bonus episode is divided into five of what I'm calling chapters. Introduction, Personal Practice, Church, Part A, Ecumenism, Part B, Health, Tough Questions, and Reflections. Reverend Witt, are you ready? I am ready. Chapter 1, Introductions You attended Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary for your Masters of Divinity, and Chicago's McCormick Theological Seminary for your Doctorate of Ministry. Across those two studies, do you have a favorite course? Yes. um, It would be a course in philosophical theology that I took at Louisville Seminary because it allowed me to think through, ask very difficult questions that had plagued me, such as the problem of evil. Hmm. You know, why does an all-powerful and all-loving God allow evil in the world? And I've continued to think about that. I've continued to wrestle with that. But there was a, my professor um, was sort of a, that was sort of his theme, sort of his mm-hmm. special pursuit in, in theological studies. And so I just counted that a real blessing to be able to do that at, at, in seminary. So would you say that class gave you more answers or more tools to help you wrestle with those? It, it, more tools to <laughs> wrestle with it, absolutely. I don't think it is an answerable question certainly not this side of heaven, but gives me tools, frameworks, different theological ideas to help wrestle with it. I guess it's always fair to ask, were there any classes you weren't so fond of? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Probably to be a Presbyterian minister, we, we have our own way of being church. We have our own way of doing church, and they call that polity. So to prepare us to go into the church and to moderate session meetings and committee meetings and to understand how we do things in the Presbyterian Church, you have to take a semester of polity. And as hard as the professor worked to try to convince us that this was really, really important, and I do believe in my heart it is, uh, it was not the most interesting. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Before all of that, for your bachelor's degree, which you got from Georgia State University, Mm -hmm. uh, that's in social work. Right. And after college, you worked at a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. And it was from there that you attended seminary. Right. So what motivated that career switch? Yeah. Let me go back a few years even before that. Um, when I was an early adolescence, 
I grew up in the Baptist church, in a large Baptist church in Atlanta. And every Tuesday afternoon, the youth person, the youth minister of that church would pile several of us, you know, early adolescent kids into her car and drive us from the suburbs down into the inner city of Atlanta, where we would simply play with kids at a local elementary school just after they got out of school. There was a Baptist home missionary there that would gather these kids and we would just play with them and they'd hang on our necks and we'd swing them and roughhouse with them. Um, so many of them just didn't have folks to do that with. And then she had always made like a, a sleeve of bologna sandwiches or peanut butter sandwiches and she'd give those out to the kids because it might be their dinner and she'd tell them a Bible story. And then we'd all pack up in our car and head back out to the suburbs. And we did that week after week for a, a couple of years. It was then that I knew I was not going to follow my dad into general contracting. My dad was a very talented general contractor, but I knew I was going to be a person who went into some sort of helping profession. After graduating from high school, I chose social work as a field of study for um, my undergraduate degree. And that was a good fit. It was a good fit and has served me well in ministry um, because I've always been a person who has been involved outside of the church in the community. And the skills and the insights I got in social work school have been very beneficial. Ironically, or the work of the Holy Spirit, when I was in college at Georgia State, I ended up living back in that same inner city neighborhood. The same Baptist home missionary was there. The same school was there. And there was a little Presbyterian church there that I eventually joined and eventually became a staff member where I would um, run a soup kitchen and a clothes closet and coached a youth basketball team and just was kind of a um, inner city street minister for a little while. And when I got married, needed a little bit more stable job and, and went to work as a mental health assistant on an adolescent unit in a private psychiatric hospital and did that for two years. The decision to go to seminary was not a decision to become a minister. That was not at all in my mind. It was that I was a guy in his early 20s who was um, struggling with the state of the world, struggling with the state of his own family. And I thought I was going to go to seminary to figure things out. How does God fit into all this? Our family was faithful in our attendance in Sunday school and church. We were at church whenever the doors were opened as a kid, and I, I'm really grateful for that background. But the theological answers that sort of childhood experience gave me were not doing it for mm -hmm. me as an adult when I was wrestling with more adult issues. So I thought I'll go to seminary and I'll study. And that's what mm -hmm. I did. I I thought I was going to get a degree in theology and then go back to Atlanta and be a social worker 
or maybe a teacher or so a coach you, you or something. So you were going like for that. answers, not a career. Right, right. And then in my senior year in seminary, I was working in a, in a wonderful, small Presbyterian church as an intern doing field education. And I was allowed to preach a little bit. I was allowed to visit people in the hospital, worked with the youth, led worship. And uh, lo and behold, I heard a call to be a pastor during mm -hmm. that year. And so my whole trajectory changed. And so I then started pursuing ordination. I had not even mm -hmm. thought about ordination before that. So then pursued ordination. So that was almost 40 years later. Uh. I mean, 40 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> So the Holy Spirit obviously speaks to different people differently, but I think a lot of people, especially, you know, young people asking themselves questions like, what should I do with my life? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to hear God's call. Yeah. And, and there's often a, a strong urge of, you know, God, why don't you just tell me already? Right. What types of cues did you get that, that made you convinced that what you were hearing was God and not last night's dinner? Yeah, yeah. Ben, that's a great question. And I think I, I, I certainly have my answer um, that, I, that I believe deeply. We Presbyterians believe that God wants to speak to us and that God does speak to us, but it's not always in a burning bush or a voice from mm -hmm. heaven. And the way I heard God's voice my senior year in seminary was one, I began to sense something internally, something in my spirit. It was a sense of, it was a sense of call that I was where I needed to be vocationally. Mm. The other thing that happened is that other people confirmed that. So people began to say, you know what, you're not a terrible preacher. You know, even though you're just starting out and you have good relational skills and you teach and write pretty well. And so people began to affirm me in that role. So to a young person who's trying to figure out what to do with their life, I would say you've got to listen inside and then seek out people outside of you what do they see in you what are what do they see as your gifts what do they see as your passions because oftentimes we can't see those things um and we're often blind to ourselves yeah absolutely where we think we're great other people might absolutely have a different opinion or vice versa absolutely and so that's that's what happened i began to sense it internally the people in the church began to affirm what i was already sensing and at least the way theologically we Presbyterians think of call, that does it. For my last get to know you question, mm -hmm. choosing only one from the Old Testament and one from the New, what are your favorite books of the Bible? Mm. This might be your toughest question of well, the day. Well, <laughs> uh, the Old Testament is, is pretty easy. I love the book of Genesis. I worked under a senior pastor in Louisville when I was a wet behind the ears associate pastor who loved the Old Testament 
And frankly, he would have preferred just to preach from the Old Testament rather than include the New (laughs) Testament. And he took some heat for that. But he loved the book of Genesis. And he contended, you know, there's some people that say there's no gospel in the Old Testament. That, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger, you know, a God of judgment. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of forgiveness. He contended that that is absolutely not true, that you preach through the book of Genesis and you find grace and forgiveness all over the pages. So Genesis, I love the stories. I just love the stories of Genesis and I love to preach the stories. New Testament, I guess it would have to be the gospel of Luke because the gospel of Luke tends to be, in my estimation, the most inclusive gospel. Women have a higher place in Luke than they do in the other gospels. So I I would say Genesis and Luke. Chapter two, personal practice. Well, some people take time each day to connect to God through prayer or reading scripture or through use of a journal or a devotional or, or countless other ways. Do you have a particular formula or outline for your God time, as it were? And more specifically, how has that changed throughout your 40 years? I'm going to disappoint you here. <laughs> I don't. Um, I've tried countless times to establish a daily practice, but it just doesn't work for me. So if I do have a practice, it's just a 24-7 awareness of God, trying to be aware of God, converse with God whenever that happens. And that's, I'm not saying that's the best way to do it. I'm (laughs) certainly not saying that because, um, it, it probably has led to the stunting of my spiritual growth. But I've just never, I'm disciplined in many areas in my life, but that's just not one of them. One of the things that is a part of the practice, but it's not just me, it's the whole church's practice, is, and, and this is something that I did not have growing up Baptist, and that is the awareness and celebration of the liturgical year, the way the church keeps time. And the way that the church keeps time mirrors the story that scripture gives us of God's salvation of of us and of the world. I have so appreciated that. That is one of the things that had great value added for me being a Presbyterian. Um, I love the seasons. I, I love Advent and Epiphany, and I love Lent and I and and Pentecost, Easter and Pentecost, and what each of those, you know, kind of what slightly different story, what slightly different emphasis brings to the experience, and and ju- and then just the rehearsal over again, you know, mm-hmm. you you start again in Advent and do the whole story, and then you start again in Advent mm-hmm. and do the whole story. So that has not changed over those 40 years. I'm an incredibly active person. I'm, 
if you gave me the choice, I love reading books, but if you gave me the choice between reading books or going out and working in my garden, I'd go out and work in the garden. (laughs) If you gave me a choice of just sitting and meditating under a tree or doing a spin class, I'd do the spin Mm. class. Which, interestingly, if I have any insights, any breakthroughs or aha moments like in Mm. sermon preparation or thinking about strategy for the church, Many times it comes when I'm on the spin bike Hmm. and I am drenched with sweat. There's a whole bunch of people around me. There's an instructor yelling instructions to you and there's loud rap music playing in the studio. (laughs) That's where I get my insights. Hmm. (laughs) And I, I think, you know, though you said your answer would disappoint me, that's reassuring to a lot of people. I'd say myself included, I've also wrestled with trying to take consistent time daily, if not better, to connect with God to the point of putting it on my to-do list each mm-hmm, day, mm-hmm. and half the time it still doesn't happen. And, you know, life not gets in the way, but life happens, and um, it doesn't become any easier <laughs> for me. But life is meant to be lived. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. One hallmark of a Christ follower is his or her uncontainable joy in and desire to share the gospel. Yet for a number of reasons, there's a great deal of reticence among Christians to share their faith. What are your thoughts about that? Have you found a balanced approach to what we would call evangelism? This is just me speaking personally. I'm very comfortable speaking about faith inside the church but I'm also less comfortable speaking about it outside the church, which does not make me a great evangelist of non-church people. I'm also a subscriber to the notion that what St. Francis said, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. I do believe it's necessary because I don't believe just actions alone. Actions do speak the gospel, but actions alone are not a complete speaking of the gospels. We are we are human beings and we need we need to know the reasons why certain people are behaving in certain ways. They're caring for those who are less fortunate or they're caring for those who are grieving or whatever that is. So uh and and Presbyterians, you know, maybe it's part of why I'm, it's been a good fit for me denominationally. Presbyterians tend to be sort of heady, intellectual faith people. We think about our faith and we tend also to be fairly close to the chest with it. And that's just kind of culturally, I think, who, who we are, which is comfortable for me. But it's not a good way to be when we think about the future of the church. The future of the church is going to require Christians to be able to not only act their faith, but talk about their faith. I hope we can do that. On the topic of the church, I think a common sentiment amongst especially younger people uh, who who might be spiritual or or maybe even Christian Mm -hmm. 
there's oftentimes not a great sense of a need for a church. I'll put it like this. How would you respond to that? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I understand. And I think in part this is a generational difference. For folks my age, and particularly for folks who have grown up in the church, church is the people. It's the coming together. It's it's a social, you know, Christianity is a social communal faith. Jesus gathered a group of disciples and they gather, you know, and we have churches and they, they formed churches. Um, and those folks got together and they ate meals together and they worshiped together and they um, spent time in fellowship together. Here's what I've heard. Human beings are, you know, and I think we know this, human beings are social creatures. Some of us are more introverted than others and that kind of thing, but we're social creatures and we will always, regardless of how many devices we have, we will always need one another. We will always need to have person to person, in person contact. What I've heard from some kind of future thinkers is that the church in its next chapter it's times where it gathers together is going to be primarily about relationships is people being with people and that the content that the church communicates the church delivers will largely be done online so more and more people will live stream worship or podcasts or daily devotions or whatever and so less people will be coming to church for Sunday school and that sort of thing. They'll be getting that online, but when they come together, it'll be for being together, being with the people. As we're talking about the church, can move right into chapter three, which is the church. Mm -hmm. And part A is ecumenism, which for those who don't know is the generalized sense of unity mm -hmm. among different types of Christians. You were raised Baptist, mm -hmm. but you are a Presbyterian minister. Um, was there any particular reason that you switched denominations? Well, for a Presbyterian we we might jokingly say it was preordained. It was <laughs> predestined that I become a pre Presbyterian, uh, but I say that tongue in cheek. Frankly, it was more about the church than the denomination. So uh, I was no longer active in the Baptist church I grew up in. And when I got to college, I was looking for a church to be involved in. And it happened to be this little inner city church in Atlanta which just happened to be Presbyterian. I didn't really know the difference. I was a 21-year-old, 22-year-old um, college student. I didn't know the difference, really didn't care. So I became a Presbyterian, and my appreciation of my new denominational home has just grown over the years. But I do think that having grown up Southern Baptist, Having been involved during high school in a parachurch organization called Young Life and then becoming a Presbyterian, I have an appreciation for the gifts 
of each of those ministries, even though they've been different, which has allowed me to have an appreciation for other denominations as well. There are many things we disagree on theologically, biblical interpretation, um, social, economic, political implications of the way we interpret the Bible, those things we disagree on. It has always been a blessing and a growth experience for me to be involved with pastors and Christians of other denominations. There's a sense in which denominations are like personality traits, that different denominations have somewhat different personalities, but taken together, we're the whole. So it sounds like, all in all, your impressions of the different denominations is that there's a lot of opportunity to work with each other, and oftentimes that happens. From an outsider perspective, suppose the type of person that drives down the street and asks, why are there so many different ones? Right. Do you think, from their perspective, the different denominations are helpful, hurtful? You know, you could really find a place that works for you, or is it just... Yeah. confusing why Con- do these people argue first of all it's got to be confusing it's just got yeah. to be confusing and even multiple denominations with the same name like lutheran or or multiple presbyterian presbyterian what <laughs> whatever so confusing is definitely true and i think probably from the person who has no really understanding or appreciation for denominational histories and stuff like that it's probably a downer. It's probably a turnoff for them. You know, why can't the church just be the church? But I do also think that once you make that step inside, or or if that person were to seek to find the place where they were intended to be a part of a community, that's where the appreciation of Mm -hmm. of the distinctness and the sameness. We've got a lot more in common than we have in difference when you get down to it. There's just a lot more that we hold in common. Let's move into still chapter three, the church, but we'll ask part B, which is the health of the church. We talked about this a little bit in addressing someone who says they don't need a church, but more generally, what's the purpose of a church? Bottom line, Christ is in heaven and the church is intended to be Christ's body on earth, connected to the Christ of heaven through the Holy Spirit. And so the way that is lived out to just use the great ends of the church is that the church's purpose is to proclaim the gospel, to to tell the good news that God loves us and God loves this world, to be a place of shelter, nurture, and fellowship for the believers, for those who are Christians, to be a place where worship is primary, that is intended to be our human response to God, is to worship God. And then to, I'm forgetting the next one, I preached it, but I'm totally (laughs) blocking it. Anyway, the promotion of social righteousness That is certainly part of the DNA of Reformed Christians, of Presbyterian Christians, because we believe that God is sovereign. Therefore, 
nothing is outside of God's purview. God cares about everything and everyone. And so God's heart breaks when people are not living the abundant life that God intends for them, whether that be material poverty or spiritual poverty, uh, whether that be you know, living in fear, violence, what, whatever that is. We're called to be about the repair of social, of broken social relationships. And then the last one is the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven, gave us all kinds of parables to describe what that looks like. And so the Bible insists that there is we don't know where it is, but that there is a heaven, that there is a kingdom, and that things go a certain way in heaven, right? There are certain priorities in heaven, and those priorities are fulfilled. And the church is is purpose is to exhibit that on earth. Anyway, sixth one. What is it? Preservation of the truth. I wonder why I forgot that one, because I did preach that. And the truth that we believe is embodied in Jesus Christ. That is the truth about God, and that is the truth about us, that we are given to preserve. That's a very difficult countercultural thing in this day and time when folks create their own truth. And, you know, one person's truth is equally valid is another person's truth, regardless of facts and that sort of thing. So um, that's that's a very countercultural thing. Yeah, one pushback I've heard that's along those lines is the exclusivity of the church. When people talk about that, they're not talking about excluding people, but excluding mindsets, mm-hmm. such as, well, why is my faith not also correct, right. but you say yours is? We take that basic truth the gospel, that God loves us, that in Jesus Christ, we know God and we can know ourselves and who God intends us to be. But then we splinter off into all kinds of secondary, tertiary things that end up dividing us. And, and you know, you rightly and consistently bring up, what about people that aren't in the church? Or what about people that are maybe just thinking about Christian faith. All of the data indicates that many, many, many people, particularly younger people, look at the church and all they see is people excluding other people, groups of people, mindsets. And that's not where they are. They've grown up in a world where inclusivity has been really important and exposed to so many different peoples and thoughts and ideas and experiences that uh, how can you say one is right uh, over another? I get it. I get it. I think that's a good segue into chapter four, tough questions. You know, there's any number of reasons why someone might be far from God. 
be outside of church or even faith or spirituality altogether. What do you think are the biggest barriers, and there's internal and external barriers at play, that keep people from God? There are intellectual barriers. Some people probably look at the church, look at faith, belief, as being anti-scientific. We are the children of the Enlightenment, and so the way many of us view the world is through that lens. It's the classic question of a confirmation kid, age you know, 13. <laughs> you know, the Bible says the creation took place in this way in these numbers of days, but that's not what we're learning in school. Yeah, so how do I resolve that How do I resolve and... that difference? And so um, I happen to think that scientific knowledge and religious or spiritual knowledge are two ways of knowing truth. There are two ways of, of knowing, human knowing, and that they do not have to conflict. So that that's one thing. I think another thing that gives many people pause is what they consider the hypocrisy of the church, that we say one thing and do another. And they only have to look at Christians who, somebody at your office, for instance, or in your neighborhood that talk a good game on Sunday, but don't play that game the rest of the week. I think in America and and other prosperous, wealthy places, it's harder to see your the need for faith because kind of we got we got everything yeah, we need pretty comfortable. we're pretty good yeah we're comfortable and the church throughout history has grown the widest and the fastest in places of suffering places of need and so the challenge of our church in our culture is to identify what our needs are and how our faith answers those, responds to those needs. So that I think that's a challenge. Anything else that comes to your mind? That I think I've talked with a number of people who feel the external barrier that for whatever reason they won't be accepted mm-hmm. at a church. And I think a very common one and very real one is for gay people. Mm-hmm. You know, will a church accept me if they find out, you know, what's going to happen? Or, or, you know, they might say, well, sure, you're perfectly welcome to sit here, but we really don't want you serving. Mm -hmm. You're not able to help park the cars, you know, things like that. And and I've seen that be a barrier for a lot of people. And uh, I'm sure lots of other lifestyles and demographics and life choices have similar Mm -hmm. negative experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And they're right. We, as human beings, are just comfortable with people like us, look like us, smell like us, talk like, like us, food, dress like music. us. Absolutely. And it's just hard for us to move outside of that as much as we might want to and feel like Jesus would want us to. I remember in our church in Kentucky, there was a youngish woman, probably in her 30s, who was schizophrenic. And on medicine, she was able to function pretty well. And her 
her psychiatrist encouraged her to to begin to get out and make some friends and interact with other people. And so she came to our church. And though we tried, at least some of us tried to make her feel welcome, it was just clear so many people were uncomfortable around her um, because she was different than we are. Not in a bad way, but just different. And so it's just hard. So, yeah. I think that's a, that's a real challenge of us being kind of a social club, more like a family in not a real inclusive sense than being the, the church that Jesus would want us to be. And it's probably fair to say that that phenomenon of being comfortable around similar people and you know, being a bit hesitant around different people, that's not unique to the church, no. you know, you'll find it in workplaces mm-hmm. and grocery stores, probably. So Just look at a middle school lunchroom. <laughs> <laughs> so another tough question: What does God want from people, or maybe it's better to say a person? And why should we, or why should that person be motivated to do that? I hope I'm not being flip, but my first thought was the greatest commandments. What does God want from us? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what God wants from us. It's either as simple or as complicated as that. The question of motivation to do that is the way to find the greatest joy and fulfillment in life is to love God with our whole selves and to love other people. That we will be who we were created to be when we do that. And when we are who we were created to be, we are most at joy, peace, happiness, um, fulfillment, meaning, all those things. I always have great awe for the pragmatism of God, that the things God asks of us are not in conflict with our nature. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and so God says, do this. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, this is how it's, I it's made less you. less for me. This is, hey, if, if you do this, you'll, mm-hmm. you'll be in a good spot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mentioned this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. Um, the purpose of the Ten Commandments, God is coming to the wandering Hebrews saying, I just made you free. I just freed you. Now, here are 10 things that you need to do or not do to stay free. Because whenever you stop doing these things or start doing these things, you're going to be bound somehow. It's not who you are. Chapter 5, Wit, this is your time if you want it. I don't have a lot to say, but as I inch toward retirement, I'm so deeply aware that the foremost blessing of being a pastor is the gift of being able to live life, do life with other wonderful people. 
nobody's perfect, but just the church is full of wonderful people. And every church I've been in is full of wonderful people. And though I will be a part of a church in the future, wherever we are, that will be what I most miss. I, I won't miss committee meetings. <laughs> I won't. I, I will miss preaching, but not the early Sunday morning get-up times to get to church and get it all together. I certainly won't miss church members with a complaint about this <laughs> or that. Uh, I won't miss the difficult personnel work that is involved in a church sometimes. There are a lot of things I, I won't miss, but I, I will miss living life with people and the privilege that people give their pastors of accompanying them in times of great joy, in times of great sorrow, and then just all the in-between times. So that's all. Reverend Witt, thank you again for joining Stories of Symmetry. I hope you've had as much fun as I have. Absolutely, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. Remember to visit storiesofsymmetry.com for episodes, blogs, and more. Also that you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. From wherever you're listening, stay well. Go with God. Go in peace.